Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Dee Dee, how are you? Hello, Chanel. I'm very well. Oh, you've got that look on your face. I have because I've got it. Again, I spend my entire time, my whole week, thinking, where would she hide the dead body? Mm. And I think I've got it now. Go. On you, you don't. But go. <laughs> no, no. Give me a chance. Hear me out. On the roof. No. Oh. So obvious. But I have no, been thinking about... No. How is that obvious? How is that obvious? So you could see it from other apartment buildings and things if it was on a roof. Well, oh, like no, on a house roof. The, well, the, I would pick the highest roof of all. But how are you going to get it up there? No oh. one wants to be lugging a body up. If you're going to drop a dead body, you're dropping it down somewhere. You'd have to take it down. Who's going to lug oh. it up? Yeah, either. But I have been thinking about my dead body spot, and I think I'm going to go check it out. Is that weird? <laughs> if you take it out, you have to tell us where it was. No, I think I'm going to go because I haven't. I know where I dump a dead body, but I, I haven't ever really scoped out that location. I'm going to go scope it out. You're actually going to go okay, but you if but if you if you ditch the one that you've gone with, no, no, no I'll always stay with this one because I'm certain it's really good. So I'm going to go check it out. It's going to be really weird if anyone asks me what I'm doing, but I think I'm going to go check it out and see <laughs> if if my idea would be is is a thing if it could yeah. work. But then you have to tell us. This is the third time I'm saying it because I really want to know. No, I'm not um, going to tell you. I'm 100% not going to yeah, tell you. Yeah, but no, you. what I want to see, what I want to get is just like um, I want to see what your mindset is. So if I know where you're – if you're moving the, the body, which you haven't – just to be clear, Chanel hasn't killed anyone. I have not and I do not – I would – wouldn't think about it, but I've just – in my time on the road where I see where people dump bodies, it has – gotten me thinking about where I would dump a body and I have a great place. Because I will I've, not sell it to anyone either. So if no if one you're wants a, to buy it. No one wants to Well, that. you don't know that because I thought if someone wants good. to slide into my DMs and ask about <laughs> where this spot is, I'm not going to give it to you, not even for money. Uh, but I am self-satisfied that it's quite good, but I'm going to go check it out. Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com if you think you know where Chanel would hide a dead body. I thought the roof was good. You know, it, in um, mm. around there was a building called the Deutsche Bank next to, or it was near the World good. Trade Center, and it was job. like three years after nine eleven. How are they you found going bones to on the roof? Get the body onto the roof. No, I know it doesn't make sense. All right, I tell you this episode about. Did I do a French accent last time? I think I did. You did tonight, Italian. Mm. The Correggio Sopmega, Leonardo. Junkyuli. Okay, so we know with Didi that the first go is always really shit, but then yeah, but it, it gets, gets better. Pouring in Montella. Oh, does it? <laughs> does, does it get better? <laughs> she was born in Montella di Avellino in Italy in 1893. And while she was still a young girl, she attempted suicide twice. What does Your that tell you? always go down a suicide path. I'm just saying. It's a common theme with you. No, I'm just – we'll see with that. Well, it's fact. And it kind of gives you the headspace of this poor creature. If she attempted suicide twice – I mean, this is in the 1890s. What was making a little girl want to kill herself? 
Very true. It was either something she had been born with or something awful happening. So this is a child that's not had a great start in life. Good time to mention if you are looking for help, if you are not okay, if you want to ask your friends if they are not okay, there are services available. We have all those numbers available on our Facebook page and social media. Yep, we do. In 1914... Leonardo married Raffaella Pansardi. He was a, a clerk in a registry office. And they went to live in Lariano. <laughs> There's way too many Italian words in this for my liking or, or abilities to speak. Uh, Franco Cozzo, <laughs> that's all I'm thinking in my head. Grandsile, grandsile, grandsile. So he was a clerk. Her parents didn't approve of the marriage because they had another man picked out for her to marry. And so they weren't too happy about it. At this point, Leonardo decided that her mother had cursed their marriage and cursed them. Again, we're getting an idea of how her mind works. Um, so they moved away to Raffaella's hometown, which was Loria, or Loria, if you're Australian. And in 1921, Leonardo was arrested for fraud and sent to jail. And I don't have any details on what she actually did there, and I wish I did. Again, she's not. You're, you're straight, you know, she's not there cooking lovely cakes for happy, there's not flowers in the garden. She's not okay. At her home. She's not okay. When she was released from jail, they moved again, but their home was destroyed by an earthquake. So even though she's a bit sort of unhinged thinking her mum had cursed her, certainly their life is not going terribly well. They moved again then to Correggio, where her husband um, helped her open a small shop. And apparently she was she was quite well liked in the neighbourhood and well respected. Leonardo had 17 pregnancies. I can't. I can't either. And I, I can't I'm deal. Two, and honestly, the amount of credit that I want for just doing two. like it's, I haven't done any. I buy dogs, so. Okay. Well, it's the same, only a little bit harder. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't birth them. Uh, three of her babies were miscarriages. Ten of them died when they were very young. Hmm. Again, like for me, this is the 1890s. There's a big question mark there. But it wasn't uncommon for children to die young in those days. But Leonardo had been told by a gypsy fortune teller many, many years prior to that, you will marry and have children, but all your children will die. I know. Why? Wonderful. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, Gypsy Fortune. You're really in the business of return customers. I'll be back. (laughs) So the issue here is now. So she's lost all but four of them, which meant that the the remaining four, she was just fanatical about protecting them because she was now terrified that they were also going to die. She then went and had her palm read by another gypsy, like as if you wouldn't just be totally off gypsies after that. Gypsies. And this particular gypsy told her, in your right hand I see prison, in your left a criminal asylum. Mm. In 1939, when she heard that her – so 1939, just think the world on the brink of war, some areas already in conflict. um, And she heard that her eldest son, and he happened to be a favourite son as well, Giuseppe, was to join the army. That was only a slight accent there because I don't – I just felt it was disrespectful. Favourite son. Keep with it. Um, She was just terrified. She didn't want him to go to war. And she had been told by another fortune teller. Oh, no. And this is according to her. So it could be that there never were any fortune tellers and she was just hearing voices or making up. That's probably 
It's possible. A more likely scenario. Otherwise, she needs to be given up on the fortune tellers. I just didn't know there were so many fortune tellers around at that time. But anyway, she said that another fortune teller had told her that in order to save her son's life, if as he went off to war, she needed to make some human sacrifices. She had three friends in town, uh, three lonely middle-aged women, all of whom – now, Correggio, I don't know terribly much about it, but it must have been a fun place to live at that time because these three women all wanted to oh, His old mates running around talking to psychics <laughs> and now they're telling her that she has to make a sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> so the first of the women – uh, Faustina Setti. Uh, Leonarda told this woman that she had found a husband for her in Pola. And now this is a lonely woman who mm. wants to get out of town. And so when Leonarda told her, you know, I found this lovely man for you. He's going to marry you. He's in Pola. Um, she said, don't tell anyone about it. And she even convinced this woman to write some letters to all her friends saying, I'm, I'm now living in Pola. I'm married and everything is well. This is a comment. This is what murderers do. I've heard of this before. Like, setting up a scene for yeah yeah for covering their tracks later well the woman did it she wrote the letters um and she was going to send them later but that never this happened. is a warning if anyone ever asks you to write a, a letter saying that you're fine but can you sign it 2019 or 2020 they're going to murder you did something like this happen in that the mornington monster yes what was his name yeah. yes although did. no he was sending emails to her mother after her death what was his name there you know is, what? I'm going to do him in the next episode. John Sharp. John Sharp, that was it, um, who killed his wife and daughter. And I think his wife was pregnant. But I think he he went on to – I'll tell the story ne- next episode, I think, of what he did because that fits into dead bodies. But I think he, he corresponded after he had actually killed her to try and make it's it look freaky. like she was alive. Yeah. Okay, so Faustina, um, victim number one, never reached – Pola never married this man who I doubt ever existed anyway because Leonardo went to see her before she was supposed to leave town and killed her with an axe and then dragged the body into a closet, cut it into nine parts and gathered the blood in a basin. Hang on, nine. Knees, hips, that's four, torso, five, Um, arm, arm, head. Oh, I've got too many pieces. Hang on, head, torso, arm, arm, what's that, four? Leg, leg, five, six. You need nine. Well, cut the legs in half at the knee. Six, seven, eight. Maybe she's. Maybe she cut the torso in two. Torso's big. She's an Italian woman. She would have been well fed. I reckon she's cut the torso in two. That would be very hard to do, though, wouldn't it? No, because it's only the spine in the middle part. Yeah. Hmm. Have you drawn a sketch there? Have you Have you got nine parts? I've drawn a sketch, but I've only got one, two, three, four, five, six parts. And then if you do the arms in two, that's too many parts. You wouldn't bother doing the arms in two. You would do the legs in two. The arms, arms are good size. That's a good size to chop. Reckon? Yep. She made a statement later, and I'm going to give it to you to read because I want to see your reaction as you read it. She described what she – she never denied killing this woman. Here's, okay. here's her statement. So this is a statement. This is her statement later. to court later. Yep. I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, mm-hmm. which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. Keep going. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven. Mm-hmm. 
ground it and mixed it with flour. This is not real. Keep going. This is her statement. She wrote it. With flour, sugar, chocolate, mm-hmm. milk and eggs. Yep. As well as a bit of margarine. Kneading all the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. There's another paragraph. Keep going then. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make... Some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave the bars to neighbours and acquaintances. The cakes too were better. That woman was really sweet. Do you know the most shocking thing for me out of that whole thing was it? Did you know they had margarine back in those days? That's what shocks you the most out of all of that. So you've read that and you've gone, I can't believe they have margarine. I can't believe it's not butter. It's not, mate. It's a dead person. Mm. Now, um, some say that she did this because she was after the woman's money that she'd taken thirty thousand dollar lira, thirty thousand lira, as payment for her services for for finding this husband. For you, all right? You fine? No, I'm just. She did not do this for money because if you do it, you don't yeah. do all that. I know. Uh, I agree, I agree. A second victim, she'd promised her um, a job at a girls' school in another Italian place that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Piacenza. Piacenza. And then you do it. Uh, And we regret it. it. Again, again, she convinced her to write a couple of postcards to her friends saying she was leaving but without saying where she was going. Um, And then her third... Um, victim or sacrifice was a woman called Virginia Cacioppo who had once been an opera singer but she was 53 and her opera singing days were well behind her and she'd been reduced to living in poverty so Leonardo told her that she got her a job in Florence as the secretary to a mysterious theatre impresario and she told her not to tell anything and she took her money and she took her jewels as well and she ended up in a pot. Actually, it was she that ended up in the pot and was turned into soap. That was the, the last paragraph of what the statement you read just really then. much easier to murder people back then than now, isn't it? Probably, yes. Yeah, because because of all the smells everywhere too. Like just you the would, lack of cameras, the people not really noticing that other people are going missing. Mm. You didn't have a tax file number back then. Well, with the last victim, somebody did actually notice her missing. Her sister-in-law was a bit suspicious because she had seen uh, Leonardo going into her sister-in-law's house and she told the police about it and they then questioned Leonardo. And when they went and questioned her, she confessed to the entire thing. So she was actually tried for murder in 1946. Um, uh, this is from a newspaper report of the trial. They called her poetess Leonarda, which I find very strange, poetess. Uh, she gripped the witness stand rail with oddly delicate hands and calmly set the prosecutor right on certain details. Her deep-set dark eyes, can't you just – well, actually, you can picture them because they're up on our Instagram and our Facebook and our Twitter page. Um, her deep-set dark eyes gleamed with wild inner pride as she concluded, I gave the copper ladle – which I used to skim the fat off the kettles to my country, which was so badly in need of metal during the last days of the war. So she took out of this whole experience of boiling down bodies, 
that she had been a generous person and gave the metal ladle to the country. Wasn't she a good person that she did that? She's crazy. She was found guilty, uh, sentenced to 30 years in prison, three years in a criminal asylum, and she died on the 15th of October, 1970. Just 30 years? Yep. She was struck down by cerebral apoplexy, which I've got a feeling one of my great, uh, great uncles died of. It's kind of a fit, I think, isn't it? It's probably what we would call a stroke these days, apoplexy. I was thinking if you mm. describe someone as being apoplectic, then they're like furious, white hot with rage. and Just 30 years for that. Mm. Get life for that now. Anyway, Chanel, I've got this lovely bar of soap as a gift for you. Oh, lovely. I've got tea cakes for you. How lovely. <laughs> I'd prefer a story if you've got one. I do have one. Now, we've spoken about I want my funeral to be chaotic. Yes. And I want all the people I hate to come so that my family can tell them to leave. Yes. I want it to be really dramatic. But in all seriousness, I feel like people want their funerals to go exactly as they want their weddings to go. Everything planned, no mishaps. Right. Phones on silent. Right. Do you want me to can, – can, can I have a job at your funeral? Can I be in charge of – You're hysterical. Oh, I'm crying. I'm really upset. Yeah. Okay. Is it, am I upset because the podcast just had to come to an end and I love doing it? Or is it – it's everything. No, it's mainly just about it's my because, death. And it's because you've died and you didn't tell me where the body would be hidden and that's going to drive me mad. Exactly right. All of these things. Okay. Well, Eleonora James, she died at age 67 in Michigan. Mm-hmm. She died on November 9 in 2010. Now mm-hmm. – she was a very much loved lady. Uh, one of the notices put in the paper said, Grandmum will be missed by not just the family but by friends and the people of Mount Zion and the people who loved her cooking from Eleanor's kitchen. We all love and miss her. Aww. So you get the feeling she's yeah. really lovely and there'd be lots of people that would go to her funeral. She's got – it describes her as having a host of grandchildren and great-grandchildren – um, lots and lots of family. Anyway, so everyone's gathering for her funeral. And why are you laughing? Because you're holding up a piece of paper and on the back of it is your sketch of the body cut into cut nine pieces. <laughs> Sorry. Well, <laughs> this funeral was organised. It was a beautiful memorial service that was organised and um, relatives of Eleonora James witnessed her body tumbling out of the casket onto the sidewalk in front of the church what? right before the memorial happened. That's right. Did they drop her? What happened? They dropped the casket <gasps> and her body fell out of it. Oh, Eleanor. Yeah. Oh. This made major news in the United States. Hmm. It was everywhere. And so a family member had said, this is the last time you get to show your respects for your loved ones. There was no respect and there was no dignity and there was no remorse for what happened. Now, the first her son heard of what had happened, because he wasn't, I assume he wasn't there yet, was when the funeral home rang him and said, do you have another change of clothes for your mum that you'd be happy to bury her in? We need another change of clothes. I don't know what happened to her clothes, but her clothes were not okay in the tumbling out. So they've either tried to get her back in, oh, something's happened. Spillage, leakage. Uh, there was a bit of that. Oh, burstage. So they oh. had to bring new clothes. Oh, no. Yeah. 
No. They did. They had no. they had to bring new clothes. Oh. And the family filed yes. a lawsuit. Oh, really? Yep. And? They got 80 grand. <gasps> Good on them. I would have thought more than that. Yeah. Like that's kind of... They settled out of court. Defiling they got $80,000. Um, and, you know, the... The funeral home apologised. We should say that they were very, they were traumatised by what had happened. I, would, think I can imagine. It's the yeah. worst case scenario as a funeral director that the body falls out of the casket. But don't you always worry that when you see them? Totally. But I always think, why are you getting at a funeral the sad people to <laughs> lift the coffin? Because the weak, all, sad people. I don't know about you, but when like if I'm crying, I just want to. Collapse in a little crumple in a little heap. Why are you then saying here and carry this? I mean, remember Princess Diana's coffin? They're not. And it was light. lined with lead. It weighed a ton. You They're could not. see them like struggling to hold it up. They're not light at all. I've. Mm, I wonder how frequently that I've happens. Never held, mm, no, I think I did. What? Carry a casket. Maybe my grandfather's can't remember. There really are that many you can't even remember. <laughs> Apparently Marilyn Munro's um, at her her casket the the lid came loose or something something happened and a bit of blonde hair came out. Well, Carl Williams, notorious Melbourne gangster, had a gold gold casket. I don't know if it was actually made out of gold, but it looked heavy. Did you go to Costco? You can buy you can buy coffins at Costco. They've got them there, right near the door. Cut you're in a hurry. For I don't want a Costco coffin. <laughs> Sorry, Costco. Well, I imagine they're all the same, aren't they? No, because they guilt you into buying the expensive one. Because I've ah. been through this process, and they have a flip book, and they've got the cheap, nasty ones up the front that are just made out of laminate. Don't laugh. I've done this process, <laughs> and they say these are the first options that are available, and they hold out the book, and they look at you like. Would you bury your dog in that? You wouldn't. Oh. And then they flip to the next couple of pages and they're like the ones that everyone gets. I'll have the Nimbus 3000, thanks. That's right, yeah. because you can't bury your loved one in a shit <laughs> coffin because that's rude. And don't drop it. Put extra. Can I have one with extra handles, please, and straps? It's It really is. I mean, and that whole lowering of... Oh. The lowering always gets me because sometimes the feet go lower than the head. And yep. it, it's... I think that might have been – oh, no, because Marilyn's in a mausoleum, isn't she? She's in like an above-ground thing. I don't I don't know where they tipped her and her hair came out, but I remember reading it in one of the books. I'd be pissed in the afterlife mm. if they dropped me. I really would be. But you don't know – you're the one that says you don't need your body anymore. Didn't you say it's a tent? No. You, you don't need the tent anymore. What's have... the matter if it gets dropped? No, I don't want to be dropped. Mm. Didi, I want to introduce you to someone who is a dear friend of mine. This She's is... lying. <laughs> no, we are friends. We're friends, we? damn it. Yes. A, I'm just hearing this for the first time. <laughs> Where did you find this person? Just well, out I found the him front? just outside yeah. and we you know, didn't have anyone else to come in for this part of the You haven't got any episode. other friends because you've don't. got so, such an interest in dead bodies. No one wants to be friends with you. Correct. <laughs> and so but he came instant, along. Yes. Michael's come along um, and... I've known Michael for a very long time and he has very instilled his trust in me and told me a little bit about his family situation and he's going to share that with us in this episode and I'm, I'm really honoured to, to say that the least that you're sharing this story with us. It's cool. quite a big thing to talk about. I feel quite honoured myself given that we've just met um, and all I know at the moment is that you were going to tell us about your sister. Yeah. Uh, so my sister passed away from uh, an aggressive form of brain cancer six years ago. I was 26. She was 23. Mm. Uh, and 
that was the first dead body I'd seen was when my sister passed away in hospital. When you pass away from the particular type of brain cancer that she had, um, the doctors identify a period when the body starts to shut down and they know how long it takes. It's really bizarre. They give you four days or they gave Jess four days. Her name was Jess. I should probably mention that. Yeah. Um, so she had four days um, from being admitted to hospital for the final time to mm. passing away. And we were on that journey. We, we sort of saw, I saw my sister die for four days, which it was a really shitty thing to be a part of. Yeah. Um, but you can swear on our podcast, by the way. Okay. okay. You, I, just, you, I just took some license then yeah, and thought I'd want to do it. No, you can swear. It's fine. Are, you, are there other siblings or just the two of you? No, no. It's um, just, just the me. two of you. Yeah. And sometimes so, when people ask me, um, do you have any siblings, just for the sake of conversation, I say no. And they go, oh, that makes sense. You're an only child. And I'm like, well. What does that mean? Yeah. What sort of person do you think I am? But yeah. no, I, I did Why have do a sibling. Why you do that just so you don't have to Oh, the so, Sometimes I just, it brings the mood down mm. and, you know, like I don't often know those people and I don't mm. want to tell them really personal stuff about my sister, yeah. I think. Um, uh, what was she like? Uh, she was fierce, independent. She was a badass. She listened to heavy metal music. For anyone who listens to heavy metal, she loved Meshuggah. Uh, they are, I think they're a Swedish like math metal band. So she was a badass. She had mm -hmm. piercings everywhere. She had jewelry everywhere. One of my, um, one of the most bizarre memories from the night that she passed away, um, was when we get the time of death, the doctor does the final check on Jess. Uh, we then go in, um, close the door and we had to take off all of her jewelry. So why? Well, I guess we wanted it. Oh, okay. I wanted to keep it. And um, yeah, so there was this really bizarre situation where mum, dad and I are all standing around Jess, crying, laughing and pulling toe rings off her toes. Like she had so many earrings. We're pulling earrings off, off, her, her, off her hands. They're the little things that when someone passes away, you're not ready for, you're not prepped for. But when you're locked in a room with a loved one who has just passed away, you're like, shit, what do we do now? You know, yeah. like, do we, do we say goodbye? Do we like, what do we salvage? Do we keep something? I kind of felt like a scavenger taking her rings off her, but I really wanted them as a keepsake. Like I still have um, some of her rings that I wear on a necklace around my neck. So it was really important for us to do that. But in the same sense, it felt really bizarre to do that. I was talking to a colleague yesterday who's expecting a baby with his wife. And I, I said, like, I, I've had two children myself and I've never got over that moment where you're in the room and there's suddenly another human being there. A new person is in the world. What's it like then to have someone, and especially someone who's part of you, who's your sister, to be there but then gone? That how do, was, how um, do you process that? It's still so vivid. That That is one of the most um, vivid moments of that four-day process is that when she did take her final breath, um, I, I remember walking in that room and there being a vacancy. I, like it was this, it almost felt like this all-encompassing sort of physical mass. I don't know if I'm articulating that right, but I could tell that she wasn't there. And that was the point where pretty black and white or cut and dry when it comes to life and death. You know, if science doesn't prove it, I don't believe it. But in that particular moment, that's when I believed that 
we are more than just a blink of an eye. You know, we all have souls. And I know that sounds like I've got magic happen stickers on the back of my car, but I don't. But it was so obvious to me that she had left the room, not just in her heartbeat and her breath, but who she was, her soul had gone. And that was, it's still so vivid right now. I still remember that feeling walking into that room and looking at her and realizing that, yes, that is my sister and that is what she looks like, but she just wasn't there. Did you touch her? Yeah, yeah. That was the first thing I did. Um, I, I went in and I was a mess, like I was crying, just as, as you know, you would imagine. Of course. Um, and I went in and I, for want of a better phrase, I kind of held her in like a headlock, like I put my arm around her head and like brought her head in close to mine. Um, and I don't know, it felt really strange, like identifying that she wasn't there, but I still had this need to just embrace her. And I knew that that was going to be the last time mm. I'd have any sort of physical contact with her or be mm. close with her. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really strange feeling holding my sister who I loved mm. and love so dearly, but she wasn't there. And how do you let go? Do you mean that particular do, night? Or? Yeah, when you were holding her, how do you, when is the moment you oh, let man, go? That, that was the hardest part. Like that was what, like when do you walk out of that room? Yeah. Because it felt like we were turning our back on Jess. Yeah. Like symbolically and mm. physically, you know, like we have, there is a point where you've got to walk out and shut the door on your daughter and your sister. And I think it's also, I've done similar with uh, a family member, but it's that point. I don't know if it was like this for you, but when you go, I'm accepting that I will no longer see that person again. I, I have to make that decision and leave now. Is is that what you were thinking? Totally. Were you trying to just savor every moment? Yeah, but and and but in the same sense, it's all it all happens really quickly. Like mm. um, she then had to, she donated like um, her eyes and brain tissue, so they had to get her out of that room mm. and get her into like post-death surgery or whatever yeah. they call it. So, yeah, that, y no one prepares you for this sort of stuff. When someone passes away, you don't know what to do in that room when you're with their body. Like how long mm. is appropriate to stay in there? Mm. How are you meant to be feeling when you walk out? We, we were. It was midnight. There was no one at the hospital. And we're walking out of the hospital and I felt like I had um, anti-gravity boots on. Like I felt like I was floating through like the hospital because it felt so strange that – my sister had just passed away. We had to say goodbye straight away. I've just pulled rings off her fingers and toes and out of her ears. And that's it. Now she's, we're, we're done. We're, we've parted ways. It was, it, was, it was so hard to process all of that in such a, a small amount of time. And did you see her at all at any stage? Was that it, in the room? Was that the last time you saw her with your eyes? Yeah, that was it. So what, when you think about her... What memory comes to you? Is it that last vision of her or do you think of memories from happier times? For a long time, all I could think about was what she looked like at the end. Mm. It took a really long time to get over that um, because so much happens to the human body when you take your last breath. Like um, you, you change colour. Like she went from... Sorry. That's a carton of beer, Didi. Whenever your phone goes <laughs> oh. off during an interview. You'd think I'd know carton of beer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she so changed colour. You change colour. Like you go, she went from blue 
uh, to grey and almost straight away. So the, would that be lack of oxygen, I guess? I, I guess so, yeah. yeah. And there was something that happened to her lips as well. Her lips sort of contorted a little bit. And they're the two real distinct things that I remember from that time. And it was really hard to shake her colour loss and mm-hmm. her lips. Um, and that stayed with me for maybe two years. But then you you sort of evolve and you start to remember the better times and mm-hmm. you go back through old photos and I, I always had her as my background on my phone, this photo that I loved of her and I. And you start to remember all the good times and not the shitty times, that, that final four days you spent with her in hospital passing away. Mm-hmm. But that is really bloody hard to shake. Mm-hmm this podcast is called Dead Bodies and we talk a lot about bodies that are found and stuff. In the end, after she'd taken that last breath, was her body her or did you feel that she somehow, you know, you talked about there being something other than... Like was her soul... Yeah. And this is something we, Michael and I have spoken about. So did you feel like... You could tell that her soul was gone, and it was just—it's almost like a I'm not trying left. to say yeah. the body's not important, but no. was, was it was the physical her not the thing anymore? Yeah, totally. I know that's mm. that's quite a hard question. It's, it's yeah. an odd you could thing, feel insensitive, it? but it's not an insensitive thing to ask. Um, you're spot on. Uh, when her final breath had been taken, uh, yeah, uh, her body was just a representation of who she was when. She passed away. She she went with that breath, and that was so obvious. It was so obvious that it was just. It could have been a mannequin laying there on the bed. I wouldn't have given a shit, mm. you know. Like it was, yeah. It, it just you, you could tell. And I've never talked about it with mum and dad, but you know, I I can tell they felt the same thing. Mm. You know, and it's it's really strange standing around someone who was there. 30 seconds prior and then then just gone. I've referred one. I think I said to you, Chanel, in an earlier episode that I spoke to um, John Edward, the psychic, at one point, and he talks a lot about death and dying because he, you know, claims some people don't believe him, I I do, that he communicates with people who've passed. And he says, do you remember coming into the world? Not many of us do remember being born. He said, it's the same. You just pass in the other direction. And that's not something to be feared. For you then now, is death, do you fear death? No, not at all. And that changed after Jess passed away. Mm. It really taught me a lesson that you were in control of nothing. She was healthy. She was fit. Uh, she always exercised. She ate right. Like she was 23, fuck's sake. You know, like how, she, how long she had... from when she was diagnosed? To when she died, how long? Six, six months. From the point of di- diagnosis to her passing away was six months. They gave her 18 months. They said, best case scenario, five years, but it was six months. Gosh. And th- there's a lot of, for a 23-year-old girl who just wants to go out with her friends and study, there's a lot to process. Mm. You know, she, she um, one thing her oncologist told me um, after she passed away, she knew the week leading up to that final four-day period in hospital, she knew that was her last week. She knew her death was approaching. How? Her oncologist told her and said right. this. So she was throwing up a lot and she, was, she wasn't well. Um, mm. And we got told that that was her reacting poorly to uh, radio and chemo, but it was mm. actually her body shutting down. Mm. Um, and she knew that but didn't say anything. Like yeah. She just she held it 
Um, and that was one of the really admirable things about her. And it kind of summed her up is that she carried that burden for the whole week and didn't She's still worried about let you us know. Guys. Yeah. So mm. she, she knew her death was upon her, um, but held on to it, didn't say anything. Mm. I don't know if I could do that. No, I mean, none of us know how we would react. I just, the thing that stays with me from what you've just told us is is holding her. I, I think that would be my reaction would just never wanting to let go. And and I think I want to argue with whoever's saying that this is the time you're going to die, that no, no, you can't, yeah. but you can't reverse it. You can't stop it. I wanted to argue too, but like everyone in that ward, all of the nurses were crying, you know, mm. like she had such a profound effect on the people yeah. in, in her ward. Dreadful taste in music though. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> she did love Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yeah, I feel like that's your vintage. Sorry. <laughs> Do you ever listen to? Hey, I you. love. I love hey. metal. No, I got her into metal, and then she went past me and started listening to heavier stuff. Now, yeah. can I just touch on something that we've spoken about before yeah. coming in here? And I know you said you don't have Magic Happens stickers on the back of your car, <laughs> but I'm going to go here. So, do you, did you believe in the afterlife prior to Jess passing away? And do you believe in it now that she has passed away? No, I didn't. I'm still dubious, but there were a few things that made me want to believe that magic may happen. Tell us. <laughs> As in little signs. Little signs, yeah. So yeah. Um, Jess was huge, like really into the environment. She was a greenie. I like to call her a hygienic hippie. Um, <laughs> she used to give money to the Sea Shepherd religiously. Good girl. Yeah. Yes. So um, when she passed away, there were three particular things um, that I think started to sway my thinking that there may be something out there that is far greater than us. Um, so I'll, tr- I'll try and tell them. I want to play X-Files music. In a way that isn't <laughs> too boring or if, if I'm waffling about it. No, no, no. Um, I'll tell them in not chronological order, but the way that I see them as being important to me. So the first time that I really felt like Jess was sort of really close. Um, and all, sorry, just before we get started, all three are in the form of an animal. Mum and dad were in Melbourne. We were on the city loop. We were approaching Parliament Station on a really busy train. And through this busy train, um, a butterfly floated. um, And it sort of like hovered around mum, dad and I. We were sort of standing adjacent to each other. And this butterfly um, flapped its wings and landed just um, above my, kind of near where my heart is and stayed there and just sort of gently sort of flapped its wings and was just floating on my jumper. We were in the city loop, you know, like we're underground, not really a place for butterflies. Um, Doors open, get out of Parliament, go up two flights of escalators, go out onto Spring Street, down Burke Street, walk for about 500 metres and this butterfly is still on my jumper and I'm looking at mum going, what the hell, like this is, this is Jess. You know, like this is crazy, and I know that sounds ridiculous. No, it doesn't, it doesn't at all. It doesn't. doesn't at all. They're the little things that, when someone passes away, and you're like longing to feel close to them, when that happens, it kind of blows your mind yeah. a little bit. So that was that was one. The butterfly eventually flew away, and Mum and I were kind of like on a bit of a high that afternoon huh. because you know we, we well, felt really close. In fairness, to her. had a butterfly ever landed on you before and stayed on you for a prolonged amount of time? Never. Okay. <laughs> no. Underground. So on a train. <laughs> underground yeah. on a train. <laughs> so the second time, and this happened really close to um, her passing away. Um, so at the front of our house, we live in northern New South Wales near Byron Bay. Um, the front of our house, we have a spare room, Jess's room, 
and my room. And there are three windows next to each other. So Jess's room is in the middle. Mm. We get home one day uh, and a rabbit is running around our front yard. And I was like, what, what's that doing there? Whose rabbit's that? <laughs> uh, and mum's like, I don't know. I haven't seen it before. Um, so we sort of go up to it. It won't let us pat it or touch it or anything. And then it scurries over to under Jess's window and it's dug out a burrow. And for the next six months, it stayed under Jess's window. It would come and go every now and then. We eventually got to a point where we could feed it. Um, I love that. It would jump up on the front porch. If mum and dad were going out like to and fro to their car, uh, the rabbit would jump up on the front porch and keep watch over them and like just watch them coming and going, coming and going. Then they'd drive out. It would go under Jess's window. If Jess heard you telling this now, what would she say? Would she say, Michael, you are being an idiot. Cut it out. Or would she go, gotcha? What would she say? Probably gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what's the other one? The third one is the one that blew my mind the most. And and it's because of um, the timing. It happened on her, the first birthday after her passing on the 23rd of January. She would have been 24. Um, I was, I took the day off work with my girlfriend, Sarah, at the time. Um, We went to a pub in Paran Mm. and we were just sitting there having a beer about one o'clock in the afternoon and like through the distance, I see this cat weaving its way through the pub, like going under tables, jumping up on tables, like, and it just made a beeline for me and it jumped up on the table in between my girlfriend and I sat down in front of me and started rubbing its face on my face and then did that for about 30 seconds, jumped across and then fell asleep on my jacket and the publican came up and he's like, oh, it's really weird. That, that cat's a bit of a schizo. Like it doesn't let anyone touch it. You know, it's a really unfriendly cat. And it had come up and rubbed its face on mine and then fell asleep in my jacket on her birthday. So I know it all sounds a bit crazy. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it sounds yeah. like. If that was a moment where you were able to feel close to your sister yeah. again then uh, what does it matter? It's funny, like when you experience like that really profound grief in losing someone, you are, I don't know, if that had happened to me and I hadn't lost a sister, I just, I wouldn't think twice about it. But mm. those those three things felt really important to me and I still feel, mm. I don't know, it still feels really important to talk about them because yeah. they felt real and that sounds so ridiculous to say, but it did, It it I felt really close to her. If not, it felt like it was her in some form friend of mine lost his father and it was a little way down the track and I asked him how he was going, how did he feel? And he said for him, the grief doesn't get any smaller, but he said it's like it's a sore and and layers of skin grow over it. And every now and again, something will happen. It could be a song or a scene in a movie or something will chip a little bit away and it opens it up again. And the hurt is there as big as it was on the day, but mostly life kind of happens on top of the grief. Is that what it's like? Is is the pain of it still there, Mm -hmm. but you just let it be covered by things that happen day to day? Yeah, So it's a really, really good way of putting it. Um, and just when you think that you're at one with it and you're dealing with it okay, it just pulls the rug out from under you and one little thing will be like this trigger. Mm. And, yeah, you I don't know, you just burst into tears. Like the obvious things like anniversaries and birthdays and mm. times when we're together as a family are the, the hard ones. That's when those layers sort of break away quite easily. Yeah. But there will be like day-to-day life where, I don't know, you'll, I'll see a friends on Facebook 
getting married. Mm. You know, she'll be 30 next year. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's bizarre to think of Jess as someone who'd be turning 30 next year. So they're the little triggers I, I, I get. It's really selfish to be annoyed by that because I love that her friends are moving on and doing that sort of stuff. No, but that is annoying. Yeah, that, that I just she doesn't get to do that. She didn't yeah. have that she's, chance. Yeah. I know it's what they say a lot of a lot of people, but she's forever twenty three. Yeah, you know, and she didn't. She is. She didn't get to mm. do that. Yeah. Was she buried? No, she was cremated. Okay. Yeah. And that was another thing. Like we we never had the conversation about death. And I asked mum mm. this recently. I was like, "Do you think we should have ever talked to Jess about?" Um, what she would have wanted after she passed away because she was not religious. She hated churches, but purely to cater for the amount of people that went to a funeral, we had to have it in a church and she would have hated that. Mm. Um, and I, th I think we made the decision to cremate her. I think because that it felt like the right thing to do in terms of who she was. She loved the environment. It seemed like a more organic thing to do, mm -hmm. you know? There's a little veggie garden out the back of our house in Ballina. We sprinkled some of her ashes in there. Um, I still have her ponytail and some of her jewellery in like this little wooden, wooden box. Really? Yeah. You couldn't do that? I don't know. No, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. That's the sort of thing that I, yeah, exactly I what I would do. I would mm. want to keep something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I it's weird. I wouldn't completely. want anyone else's ponytail, but it's it's in my my lounge room at home and it's so comforting to see that there it's like it's that's her uh -huh. you know when you said before like yeah. was her body her when she'd sort of passed away and left the room no it wasn't but that's that's symbolic that that's mm. symbolic of her that little house with her ponytail and jewelry in it so yeah. did you scatter the rest of her ashes in a specific place or no mum and dad have most of them okay a, a, a little part of her ashes were scattered in our backyard yeah and yeah i have her ponytail and jewelry yeah don't laugh about it it's okay <laughs> you have it's, that it's a bit it's creepy about it <laughs> no, I, um, so uh, what i was going to say to you and the reason why i asked is was she buried or you know what happened to her body is because i was going to ask my question was going to be if she was buried do you go there but is there like when you go to your mum's are her ashes there do you like do you ever I don't know. Is there somewhere that you go that you that you think of her, or is it the, no, the ashes because, just the ashes? I think because we we're quite a close family, and when we're together, we feel like she is around us. Of you course. know, there's there's this amazing painting that one of Mum's friends did of Jess, and there's there's just little bits of Jess everywhere in our house. So mm. we don't really need anywhere to visit her as long as we are talking about her and still mm. remembering. She's in your her. heart. She is. Yeah, and that's making my stomach ache. That's part of the reason why I wanted to do this. Some people may feel it morbid that I'm talking about my sister's dead body and her mm. turning blue, but like I gave it great consideration and she was a badass. She would, she would have been happy with me talking about this. And yep. it's a way of me honoring who she is. And I want people to know a bit about her and it helps me remember her and yeah, I know it sounds a bit strange to want to come it and talk about your sister. It doesn't. I love the sound of her. I really love the sound of her. Yeah. I think you're doing her a great honour by talking about her. Um, why should we forget her? Why should we not talk about her? Just because she's not physically here. She's clearly still with you. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to think that. What One of the amazing things that happened at her funeral, um, and it was kind of like her final fuck you to the world, um, was... <laughs> yes, Jess. I love this. So one. we were... I know. We love Jess. <laughs> we, I think we would really like Jess. Yeah. So we were um, in the church... Uh, and there's like six or 700 people there. A lot of her grungy young friends from uni were there. And I picked the photos for her funeral booklet and the, 
the photo on the back of the funeral booklet is her flipping two birds, <laughs> sticking two fingers up in the air. How'd that so, go down with Nana? <laughs> <laughs> couldn't see it. Thankfully, bad eyesight. Okay. But So the priest, when the music's happening, the priest is up on stage and he sits down in his seat, crosses his leg, flicks open the book, and it's essentially Jess <laughs> flipping off 700 people at her own funeral. <laughs> That's fantastic. It was like when they write, write help me on the groom's yeah. side of his shoes when they kneel down at the altar. That's great. <laughs> Michael has very kindly offered to share some photos of Jess. Oh, so. I'd love to see pictures of her. Can we put those up on our social media? Absolutely. I'll, I'll and definitely... I want that photo. <laughs> I want the flipping the bird photo. I still have it. Yeah, I love that. Oh, Michael, it's. I feel very privileged and um, I appreciate you trusting me because we've only just met mm. um, and and Chanel with your story and Jess just sounds like um, she would have approved of this. Yeah, and from the minute you so kindly offered to share this story with us. I was so taken aback by how beautifully you speak of her and honestly how beautifully you speak of her death. And that really is su- it's such a hard it's, – it's a weird sentence to say to someone that, you know, you speak beautifully of someone's death, but you really you really do. And I think that comes from you and shows who you are. You, you know, to be able to find such – I don't know how to put it into words, but how to how to find such positive out of such a dark time in your life just it kills my soul. It's, it's beautiful. I think that's what it it's is. Beautiful. Because she went through hell. I kinda I kinda see it as like my duty to uh like remember the good stuff and mm. mm-hmm. portray her as someone who wasn't cancer and wasn't that Definitely the impression that we I got was to kick ass girl. Yeah. That's yeah. what stays with us. Yeah. Michael, thank you for talking to thank us. Thank you. We'd like to hear your stories about dead bodies. If you have seen a dead body, we'd love to hear you via your email, our email. It's ours, but you can send a message to us via your email. It's deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. And we're all over social media. What am I saying at this point? <laughs> You've said it. <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Very professional, Chanel. She said social media. I thought we had it covered. Uh, We'll catch you next time. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.